From Arab Center, Washington, D.C., this is Five Questions. Welcome to Five Questions, a show where we unpack some of the big issues of the day, brought to you by Arab Center, Washington, D.C. I'm Yusuf Munair. In this episode, we'll be talking about the healthcare system in crisis in Gaza and the impacts of Israel's war on the sector. What is already a dire humanitarian situation before Israel's war on Gaza that began in early October is now completely deteriorated as Israel's relentless bombardment has left only a third of hospitals and healthcare facilities operational. Most alarmingly, the southern city of Rafah, previously designated by Israel as a, quote, safe zone for Palestinians to seek refuge in earlier during the war, has now become the latest epicenter of violence. Israel's troops have continued their assault on the city, besieging the Nasser medical complex in the neighborhood of uh, Khan Yunus, the largest hospital in Gaza with heavy tank and artillery fire while patients still lay in hospital beds. According to UNRWA, a staggering 84% of healthcare facilities have been targeted since the onset of the conflict in October. A UN report cataloged 350 attacks on healthcare facilities, resulting in damage to 27 out of the 36 hospitals and 98 other healthcare facilities. Um, joining us uh, to talk about this issue, as well as her new book, is Yara Asi. Yara is uh, an assistant professor in the School of Global Health Management and Informatics uh, at the University of Central Florida and co-director of the Palestine Program for Health and Human Rights. She is also a non-resident fellow here at the Arab Center in Washington, D.C., the Foundation for Middle East Peace and Democracy for the Arab World Now. Her new book, How War Kills the Overlooked Threats to Our Health, looks at war and militarism as threats to public health. Uh, Yara, thank you so much uh, for joining us on this uh, episode to discuss this very important topic. Thanks for having me, Yusuf. It's good to be with you. So let's start with this. Can you just give us sort of a status update and talk to us about the current unfolding humanitarian crisis in Gaza? And also, what is the situation with the crossings? What aid, if any, has been able to reach Palestinians in the Gaza Strip? Yeah, thanks for starting with this um, overview. And, you know, I've been, of course, talking about this uh, pretty consistently since this started. And the only thing that has changed is the numbers get bigger and bigger and the crisis gets worse and worse. It's deteriorated so rapidly. Uh, it's just been, you know, a horrific four or five months in the Gaza Strip. Um, so just, I mean, by the numbers themselves, uh, at least 28,000 dead, probably closer to 35, 36,000 once all the bodies have been removed from the rubble. And of course, without a ceasefire, uh, those numbers will continue to grow. An estimated 70,000 with injuries of some sort, uh, many life-altering injuries, amputations, burns from white phosphorus. It's It's been devastating to see. And of course, 2 million people displaced, which has caused an ongoing humanitarian crisis that will persist 
even after a ceasefire, because many of these people have nowhere to return to. Um, these shelters, wherever people are able to find shelter, sometimes it's a designated shelter, some are in tent cities, some are sheltering in hospitals and schools, and of course people still remain all throughout the Gaza Strip, including in the north. Um, these shelters are very crowded. They have very limited services, especially for specialized populations like children, people with disabilities, pregnant women, elderly people, um, limited water, very limited food, limited access to sanitation services. Um, we're hearing really alarming reports about infectious disease coming from these environments, as is absolutely expected and has been warned about since basically immediately after October 7th. Um, and with winter approaching and as people, or not really, we're in the middle of winter, and as people's bodies continue to deteriorate from lack of food, lack of sleep, constant stress, they become more and more susceptible to these infectious diseases. Things that both normally wouldn't be typically a problem, like influenza, right? If you're vaccinated, if you have access to pharmaceuticals, uh, adequate food, water, able to rest, most people can recover from, from many of these infectious diseases in, in this kind of context, especially for children, infants, newborns, this can become deadly very, very quickly. And um, we've also heard outbreaks of things like hepatitis A and without um, many children getting their vaccinations in the past several months, we're, we're really worried about what can spring from that, polio, measles, etc. Considering the, the phrase that you used, humanitarian crisis, I, I have to also address just the sheer number of orphans and unaccompanied children. I think a report from a few weeks ago mentioned almost 20,000 children either who, who have lost either just their parents or in some cases their entire families. Um, they have been murdered or they have simply gotten separated somehow. Um, the long-term trajectory for these children is very, very concerning for us. You know, and of course, this famine, this starvation, this man-made starvation that we have been increasingly hearing about in recent weeks, um, the, the world's kind of foremost uh, famine and food insecurity body, which is the IPC Famine Review Committee, estimates that 90% of people in Gaza, which is about 2 to 2.1 million people, are facing acute food insecurity um, many are already at catastrophic food insecurity, and they estimate that of all the people in the world facing imminent starvation today, 95% of them are in the Gaza Strip. We're still seeing limited fuel. Uh, there's reports today at hospitals in the Gaza Strip that patients have died in the ICU because of lack of fuel. Um, it is just a, from top to bottom, uh, crisis. So you asked about you know, what is coming in to kind of help mitigate some of this? And the answer is still very, very little. Um, there was an estimate yesterday that about 20 trucks of food managed to enter. Um, local estimates say that they need at least 1,000 trucks per day to enter to meet current needs. And many of the trucks, of course, are still not able to go to the north. So those people are, are still not receiving food, medical supplies, services as nearly as consistently, if at all. And that's where we're seeing a lot of the starvation right now and a lot of the um, infectious disease spread as well. Um, so Israel has continued to use its control, uh, along with, of course, the enablement of Egypt to limit humanitarian aid entering the Gaza Strip, uh, entering to um, 
entering this humanitarian crisis, which they have created. And uh, again, it's despite vocal pleas, uh, apparently from the United States, they have not increased the amount of uh, aid that they're letting in. There was even just a report that the U.S. had kind of gotten guarantees that shipments of flour would be able to enter the Gaza Strip this past week, and even that was blocked. Um, so Israel is really leveraging its control here to ensure that this situation stays this way. So, Yara, I want to ask you now about um, uh, your book and one of the one of the arguments uh, in it. Uh, of course, this was written before the war uh, on Gaza had began, um, right. and you know you talk about the the many pitfalls that the international um, community faces during wartime in regards to the lack of accountability for attacks on healthcare facilities, which have historically been seen as neutral and protected places under international law. Um, you know, you, you talk about different examples, looking at strikes on, on hospitals in Yemen, Syria, um, in Afghanistan, and so on. It seems, though, that we have really turned a corner now with this war on Gaza. It's the first time in modern history that we've seen such blatant attacks on this scale. Um, given this context, what are your thoughts uh, on South Africa's genocide case against Israel brought before the International Court of Justice? And what other steps can be taken to strengthen the global norms against the targeting of healthcare facilities after these kinds of horrors? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, Israel has, of course, been bombing hospitals in Gaza basically during every military campaign. Uh, we saw this in 2008, 9, 12, 14. In, in 2021, they bombed the uh, Gaza Strip's only COVID-19 facility. Um, so this is not necessarily new. What is new is, as you said, the scope and scale of this. So prior to October 2023, and, and the primary example in the book on this chapter of attacks on healthcare was Syria. Just the blatant, explicit, not just, and, and, and of course in Syria, they were not even pretending that these were accidental strikes as, or, or mistakes as Israel and other uh, actors do. This was purposeful. They were trying to cleanse these areas of um, people that they did not want in those areas. And one of the ways to do that is to bomb the hospitals. And I was reading a report from Syria, in fact, where wounded people would tell paramedics, don't take us to the hospital because we know that it's going to be bombed. And that militant groups in Syria would purposefully meet far from healthcare facilities because they knew they would be safer elsewhere. So until recently, Syria was kind of the, you know, the litmus test for how we're going to handle, as you said, what is by by all accounts really unacceptable um, by international humanitarian law with very, very few caveats. And unfortunately, there was very little done. Um, as we saw Syria unfold, there was very little effort um, to hold perpetrators accountable. And in fact, in recent years, we've seen Syria kind of being reintegrated into um, international fora in different ways. This war is different. And this scale of attacks on healthcare has been really devastating. Um, so a recent uh, report found that from October 7th until about mid-December, the IDF had dropped about 29,000 bombs on the Gaza Strip. Now, 
many of those bombs and, and research that um, I'm working on with some colleagues confirms this fell within very close vicinity of hospitals. And Israel's, of course, justification is always that these hospitals have lost their protected status, right? Their Hamas command centers, that's what we heard about El Shifa, where they're, they're hostage holding places, that's what we heard about Anessar Hospital, even though they later said that they did not find any hostages there. Although with Syria, there was no kind of fog of war, the international community has basically wholly accepted Israel's justifications for what it's doing. I'm sure you remember that infamous AI-generated video, I guess, that Israel created about this complex infrastructure under al-Shifa that they were undoubtedly going to um you know unveil and and then show that this this raid the the cutting off of fuel the seizing hospital workers would all be justified we didn't see any of that evidence now as you know dozens of hospitals have been either destroyed completely or damaged to the point where they're inoperable and to my knowledge we still have not seen any evidence of this we will hear the U.S. spokesman, uh, the State Department spokesman, or John Kirby say, you know, we're following up with our Israeli partners, we're seeking more information. Uh, we never hear follow-up about any of that. And I firmly believe that if there was concrete evidence that this, you know, hospital infrastructure was such really just a front for a militant activity, I feel very, very certain we would have seen this evidence at this point. I think we have to remember when we think about bombing hospitals that it's not just a violation of their protected status. Um, so of course, hospitals have to be um, protected with the exception of, you know, this kind of vague term of, of acts harmful to the enemy. So it seems as though as long as the perpetrator of the violence says that the place has is is either involved with or people there are involved with hacks acts harmful to the enemy they will never be questioned about whether these um attacks were justified um we will not get the robust independent investigations that we we need and it's not just an attack on IHL and the way that we interpret IHL IHL being international humanitarian law um but we have to remember that a hospital in a community is a, a place of shelter, a place of sustaining life, a place that its existence shows that, you know, there are people here, there are people delivering care, there are the doctors and nurses who've been caring heroically all, all through this time. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a place where people, even amid, amidst all of this destruction and horror, still feel the safest place to probably be is in the hospital. That's why you're seeing so many tens of thousands of people sheltering there. So when we see these attacks on hospitals, it's not just a question of, well, is there really terror infrastructure and what's the evidence for it? It's This is an attack on life itself in the Gaza Strip. This is collective punishment. And I do believe that retrospective studies will show that this was a mechanism of forcing displacement in the Gaza Strip because people, as you know, in these contexts, and especially due to the history of Palestinian displacement, they wish to stay as long as they can. And they will stay after the bakery is gone and they will stay after their neighbor's apartment building was bombed if they can. But once there is no accessible health care, 
no doctors around. Um, when you, when you are, if you're a pregnant woman, if you're anyone who requires any type of care for something beyond a trauma injury, you know, you have cancer, you need dialysis, you have diabetes. If there's no medical care around, that is a death sentence for you. And for some people, we're hearing that this is the line where once the local health facility was destroyed or damaged or the staff fled or whatever, that was when they also decided to flee because this is a sign that we are really devolving into a place where we can no longer sustain life. And especially when you look at the targeting in the north, when you look at these satellite images of damage, it looks very purposeful, um, you know, kind of forcing people south into Rafah, which is now, of course, uh, seems to be the next target. In terms of the genocide case, it's really interesting because, uh, and you bring up the kind of public health lens, part of their claim is not just the damage, the death toll, the destruction of the bombs and the snipers and the tanks, but they cite, quote, an assault on Gaza's healthcare system, which renders life unsustainable, unquote. So they are saying it is not just that IHL is being violated and the protected status of these hospitals is being violated as part of genocidal intent or potential genocidal acts, but that the assault on healthcare, just like this use of starvation as a weapon of war, is itself a weapon of war, rendering life in certain parts of Gaza unsustainable, forcing displacement, forcing desperation, causing people with otherwise preventable or treatable health ailments to suffer great injury or potentially die. Um, we've heard of at least a dozen cancer patients who died, not from bombing, but because the cancer hospital was shut down in early November and they were unable to receive treatment. How can we not see that as a battle-related death? Their, their death is directly linked to the fact that the care that they needed was unavailable because the hospital was shut down because it did not have fuel because of the siege that Israel imposed. So they do not see this as indirect side effects of war. They are seeing this as part and parcel of this entire assault. Um, and so I think that that's really important to note and... Um, I think, you know, considering the provisional measures that came with their first uh, released uh, report after the initial case, it's very clear that Israel has not taken any of those measures. Um, we're still seeing significant loss of life. We're still seeing the siege enforced. We're still seeing attacks on healthcare and journalists and all the rest. And so I think that the totality of the package is quite strong. And we even saw a tweet by the typically um, very shy prosecutor of the ICC who has said, we are not seeing any changes in Israel's conduct despite these questions. And so he said something to the effect of, don't be angry if, if my office is forced to act. So um, if someone like him is kind of issuing these these warnings, I do think that people are seeing that this is purposeful attack on life. And I just want to end, um, you said these predictive metrics in the death toll. There was an article just a few weeks ago written by a UK global health expert who said that in current conditions, considering infectious disease, starvation, level of displacement, extrapolating from previous geographic contexts where we've seen similar trends, an estimated quarter of the population could die within a year from these causes, not from bombing, from these other causes. And do the math, that's 500,000 people. Now, I hope that 
she is um, greatly overestimating based on these this previous data, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. And I do think those deaths should be considered as direct deaths from this military assault. Yeah, and you know the 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 deaths that that you had mentioned that you know um, are indirect deaths, but nonetheless directly connected to the events, uh, are just the ones that we know about in this moment. And of course. Um, when and 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 if and and hopefully that that moment comes sooner than later that that things uh, uh, do cease uh, and there is a chance for greater investigation and understanding of the real conditions on the ground. Yeah, I'm sure we're we're going to to find out um, many more horrific things than what we than what we know of right now. I, I want to shift to ask you about this. You know, it's not just in Gaza, of course, that we are seeing this. Um, you know, Israeli troops recently conducted raids in a West Bank hospital, and you know they did so dressed as medical personnel, um, and uh, you know targeted patients at the hospital uh, that they were after. They've kidnapped and interrogated doctors uh, from hospitals in in, in Gaza. Um, the Israeli Prime Minister and other government officials have continued this public campaign against UN. Agencies like you know uh, UNRWA, um, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, um, and not only UNRWA, of course. And you know, most recently, they accused a handful of their employees of being uh, tied to the attacks on October seventh, and so on. And this immediately led numerous donor countries to to pull or, or suspend their funding to the organization. What do you make of this increased politicization of medical personnel? And relief organizations, um, and uh, of these healthcare spaces that we've been seeing uh, in the last uh, several months. So there's a lot in that question. Uh, it's a great question, and I'm glad you brought up the West Bank because um, although we know we're not getting fully accurate documentation out of Gaza, and the true horrors, as you said, won't be clear for months or years or decades after this is over. Um, consistently, if you look at just the numbers of attacks on healthcare, and that includes obstruction and raiding as well, the numbers are, have actually been almost consistently higher in the West Bank since October 7th. Um, now, of course, we're not seeing the level of airstrikes, although we did see an airstrike on the Janine refugee camp. Um, but, but Israel has never depended on airstrikes in the West Bank because it's, it's control of the movement of everything in the West Bank allows it to use violence and other means. Um, Israel has long politicized health spaces. Um, basically anywhere Palestinians gather is seen as a security threat. And this is essentially Israeli policy that has been codified about this. This is not new, right? So remember just a few years ago, Israel had accused these six Palestinian civil society organizations of being terrorist organizations. Um, the UN is, you know, in the pocket of Hamas. South Africa is in the pocket of Hamas. The ICJ is Hamas. Um, the ICC is anti-Semitic. You know, we constantly hear these accusations. Of course, when those agencies are questioned in this way, they respond vigorously, forcefully, oh, we're doing investigations, we're doing this. But when Israel accuses uh, Palestinian doctors, paramedics, um, there's never a question, right? There's always a good faith interpretation. There's never a request of evidence. Israel is able to carry out the execution of these people without presenting any evidence. 
um, whatsoever. So the question is not why Israel does this. This is part and parcel of what Israel has always done. It's, if anything, it's only escalated. But why the international community, and this is a phrase that I have grown increasingly hesitant to use lately, who are at least forceful in condemning these events elsewhere, cannot issue a hint of criticism when Israel does it. And I want to specifically talk about this story you brought up, this raid in a hospital in Janin. The details are shocking. There were six to eight Israeli soldiers dressed as doctors, patients, and, you know, I guess what you would call traditional Arab garb that entered a hospital no um, arrest warrant, uh, not even a hint of a legal process behind this, and killed three men, one of whom was paralyzed, killed them in their beds because of either they were planning a terrorist attack. Uh, even the de- even when I read stories about this, the details of why they were actually targeted is foggy. This is on video. This is Israel does not dispute this. The national security minister, Ben Gavir, took a picture with the people who perpetrated this afterwards very proudly when they were still dressed in their their gear. To be clear, dressing as a doctor in a hospital for the purposes of killing a patient in that hospital, this is not self-defense by any interpretation of international humanitarian law. Even if these men had perpetrated some sort of terrorist attack, which again, there is not evidence that I've seen that they have done anything like that. And if there is evidence, even if that was the case, this is not how a democracy, a state that values human life, a state that values its perception on the world stage, acts in a hospital in occupied territory, let alone in occupied territory, and then not a hint of criticism. It was so shocked. I'm hard to shock when it comes to this, but this was really, really shocking to me. Just imagine if it was the other way around. For example, Hamas or other uh, Palestinian militant groups infiltrated a Israeli hospital. If Russian soldiers had done a similar type of attack in a Ukrainian hospital, this would be global news. I doubt most people who don't follow Palestine closely even heard about this raid in the hospital in Janine. Um, so I said at the time, what are the lessons other authoritarians are learning by this? They entered a hospital and did this and they got, ze- and it's on video and it was confirmed by the government and there is not a hint of criticism. This is very dangerous territory, even for this context in which there has just been uncountable, countless injustices. And like you said, there are countless more that we have just not even heard of. It's really scary. And I think Palestinians in the West Bank are really feeling as though the delicate, barely existent guardrails that existed there are falling away. And there is no one that will say anything. It's a real, I think, leads to a critique of IHL when if it means that an actor can do anything, anywhere, to anyone, as long as they claim that it's a security or terrorist, you know, related activity, if we're really going to say that that's okay, I I really am concerned about what this means, not just in the West Bank, but really anywhere in the world where there is an oppressed population living under a supremacist nationalist regime. So this is going to have serious ramifications for health in the West Bank. People will avoid, and people are already avoiding leaving their villages, leaving their towns. 
for anything that's not uh, of immediate concern because they're frightened of settler attacks. They're frightened of um, soldiers at checkpoints and, and many roads are closed at the time. And when people in a hospital cannot even feel safe in their hospital room, I think we have some real problems that surpass even Israel's intentions. We have seen just a, a complete failure of what the international community has said. It prioritizes human life, human dignity, human rights. It, that's all been shredded by what we've seen. And, you know, if you, if you can get away with genocide, what can't you get away with? And, you know, we are, uh, we're seeing very little pushback uh, at all. You know, and this is, this is something I want to ask you about because you've obviously looked at this in Palestine, but also not just in Palestine. Um, you know, the Israelis have repeatedly used the same talking points. We've heard those same talking points repeated by the United States um, that the bombing of civilian infrastructure, healthcare facilities, schools, ambulances, you name it, is justified because you know, uh, Hamas is there or Hamas was there, or it might be used as this, there might be something underneath it. Um, there might be some weapons stored there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and really there is not a target that this type of excuse has not been uh, applied to. And I don't think we've ever seen anything like this, you know, um, how, how does this compare to other contexts? I mean, we understand that the that that the the war on Gaza is an asymmetric war. Um, it's not it's not an interstate war. Uh, we don't have two armies lining up on the battlefield and tanks meeting each other and 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 whatnot. But this is also not the first asymmetric war in history, right? And yet it stands out for the extent to which civilian infrastructure has been deemed fair game. How does it sort of compare both in terms of what's been targeted and also like the excuses that have been used to target these facilities to other asymmetric conflict situations? Yeah, I think what we're seeing is a continuation or really a building of a framework that was accelerated in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, the U.S., I mean, really destroyed much of those countries and, you know, quote unquote, collateral damage of hundreds of thousands of civilians. And that's, you know, when you think about those who died via indirect causes from starvation, from infectious disease, from lack of access to a hospital. And but we were the good guys. Right. We were doing that for a good reason. And so it was really sad that that happened. And, you know, maybe some people even wish that it didn't. But um, there was no choice. Uh, this was, uh, you know, protecting the country. And so once you're in that mindset, what can't you justify? And, you know, when the U.S. does it, it's seen as I'm not talking about by the rest of the world, but internally it's seen as just. And yes, we make mistakes, but we're doing our best. Well, surprise, surprise. Um, when others do it, they also think they're justified and you know, they just don't have the same power and influence that the United States has. Um, Israel has done something really interesting here, which is, you know, we are targeting terrorists, we're targeting terror, we're doing this for security. And several have said something to the effect of our war is not with the people of Gaza, but the terrorists. And then in, you know, several breaths later, well, but they're all terrorists, unfortunately. Um, and so that 
you know, we're targeting only terrorists, but they all happen to be terrorists. And so when you use that logic, everything is fair game. The hospitals that the terrorists are in are, of course, fair game. And the places where the terrorists are sheltering. Again, where is this evidence? Israel has been in Gaza for five months. They have completely captured large parts of it. People are constantly questioning Palestinian numbers, the Palestinian death toll. The president of the United States did that himself. When the UNRWA workers were, you know, accused by Israel, again, and I have not seen, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, really substantial evidence of, of that. Um, I think a later report said eventually it was only four workers because several were dead and several people on that list did not actually work for UNRWA. There was not a question. The, the aid was cut immediately. There was not a, we're going to ask our Palestinian partners about this. We're going to talk to our folks at the UN. We're not going to cut off the slave-saving aid. They cut it off immediately. When there are videos posted by Israeli soldiers of them carrying out war crimes, vandalizing homes, destroying empty homes, destroying empty universities that are clearly of no threat, nobody is there. Those always require investigation and further effort and will follow up and we need to get some answers. So I think this is a real concern in the humanitarian and human rights community for people who actually believe in those principles. Um, because we are really saying you only have rights if you have power. Rights come with power. They're not intrinsic to you as a human being. Um, they are something that you earn and deserve. And I hear this all the time when I, I write about what's going on in Gaza. I will always get some response in the comments or the tweets. We'll just release the hostages. Just surrender. If you just surrender and release the hostages, none of this will happen. So really, the argument is we can do we being, you know, Israel and, and, and this is the, the talk of the Israeli supporters can do anything to Palestinians as long as under this guise of, of the hostages. Now, of course, they were doing this to Palestinians before there were any hostages, but um, of course, we, we only talk about what happened after October 7th. So it is a lesson that IHL is significantly flawed because its um, power rests in its, those who have the power to enforce it, it its power rests entirely with them. And, and really what that means is the United States and to some degree, the UK, France, you know, the West, quote unquote. And if you're Iraqi or if you're Palestinian or if you are Yemeni, um, unfortunately, your death is part of greater good and your life um, was just deemed worthless because of that. Um, so I think the lines on the international stage, there are almost none. And I think that's what's really different about this time and what's really disillusioning and even frightening people. We are seeing obvious atrocities with our own eyes live streamed on video. I can't open my phone. And I'm sure, Yusuf, it's the same for you without hearing a story that just the day before I thought I'd heard the worst story in my life. And then today I read an even worse story. And yet we're being told that this is a targeted operation. And if they wanted it to be worse, it could be. And there's no alternative but this. And anyone who doesn't support this is in reality a bigot and a racist and um, doesn't value Jewish life or, or anything. And it's really um, a frightening dichotomy when we can't even describe what we're seeing with our own eyes without being maligned. And it really feels like you're living in the upside down. It's it's very hard to reconcile. I think people are seeing this slowly but surely. I mean, Palestinians have known about these structures of injustice basically from the day we're born. But I think others are really seeing it because it's so blatant. The talk from 
the people in charge is so against the reality that we're witnessing. The language is so careful. It's often so meaningless as to, it sounds even delusional at points, um, that all of these facades are, all the masks are coming off, as I've heard many people saying. And I don't know what comes next after that. This is the system we built after the atrocities of World War II to prevent atrocities. So when you're telling us that these same systems, IHL, actually can be used to justify different atrocities. What do we do with that? And this is a question I don't have the answer to. It's a question I don't have the answer to either, but it's one that I think is going to be paramount in you know the, the immediate future as people wrestle with how things should be different um, after, after this horrific war. Before we close, I do want to ask you one, one last question, uh, Yara. Uh, you know, access to medical care and basic needs were already extremely sparse in Gaza before the war. Um, I mean, I don't know how many times we heard that the healthcare system was on the verge of collapse before October 7th, how many reports said that Gaza was on the verge of being unlivable, uh, all of that before this war. And of course, the population in Gaza has been living under siege, um, and the people there have already witnessed multiple horrific wars. I mean, if you're you know, 15 years old in, in Gaza, you're, you're four, four wars old at this point. What are going to be the long-term ramifications of this war on public health uh, for Palestinians uh, in Gaza? I mean, we, we talked about the importance of health facilities uh, in terms of, you know, the continuity of life within a particular place. We haven't even touched on the mental health aspects. Where do we begin to go from here in terms of addressing the health costs? Uh, of this war into the future? Well, there's there's two aspects to that. There's kind of the logistical, technical, financial aspect. I'll start with that. So the first question is, what will be Gaza after this? Literally, in terms of territory, will it be the same place? Israel has strongly indicated this idea of like buffer zones in the north and not allowing people to return to certain places. So the number one question is, where will Gaza be um, when all this is said and done? You know, we have experience, unfortunately, rebuilding Gaza. And I wrote a piece about this for the Arab Center after the 2021 attack. There's an entire UN mechanism that's created just to rebuild Gaza because of how frequently it's been destroyed. So prior to October 7th, you're right, um, Gaza was among the most deprived places in the world um, due to the blockade. Almost everyone who needed advanced medical services needed to apply for an Israeli medical permit to receive care in Israel or East Jerusalem or the West Bank. Many of these permits were denied. Many people died. Uh, many people, uh, there was high maternal and infant mortality in Gaza. Children were dying from waterborne illness. The life expectancy in Gaza is, is lower than that in the West Bank, which is, of course, lower than that of uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, which is, of course, lower than that of Jewish Israelis. There was high food insecurity in Gaza, primarily due to economic deprivation and poverty. It was, you know, we were writing reports, as you say, about how terrible things were in Gaza. We have been doing that basically since 2007. Now we are in this new place where... We have entire just square miles that are rubble. Um, this needs to be cleared. We need to make sure that it is safe to rebuild. We need to clear the ordinance. We need to check for environmental hazards um, from a public health lens. You know, we need to ensure that there, this is safe for people to live again. But in the immediate term, we really need the resources and investment to A, stave off famine 
We need to get food to people. We need to scream this from the rooftops. People need food. They are a famous um, famine scholar, Alex Duvall, said on Dem Democracy Now! last week, um, you know, to paraphrase, you can bomb an, a hospital by accident. You cannot create a famine by accident. Famine is a policy choice. And so if people care and the, the, the world says they care, if they care, they can stop this and they should. I'm joined by many others who is very tired of the lip service of the most powerful people in the world saying how they wish things could be different. And, and I'm talking also too to the leaders of the Arab states here, not just the US and not just the UK, but where are the Arab leaders? It's very, very frustrating to see that they have not stepped in to prevent starvation at the least. I mean, where is the bare minimum here? Um, we'll need immediate care for obviously preventing spread of infectious disease. As I said, we're, we're pretty good at doing that. We have thousands, maybe tens of thousands of amputees that will need lifelong care, rehabilitation. Some have already been sent to Europe or other places in the Middle East to get that care. Will they return to Gaza? Um, will there be somewhere for them to return? We're not sure. How do we rebuild? How do we even begin to rebuild this hospital infrastructure? You know, some of these hospitals had medical equipment that took weeks and months or years of applying for permits and getting approvals to get in. Will we have to do all of that again? Think about the generation of healthcare workers that we've lost, doctors and nurses and medical students. Some of them were heads of hospitals or deans of medical schools. You can't replace that in a year, let alone in 10. How do we rebuild the human infrastructure as well? In terms of though the other, you know, you, you kind of, you alluded to mental health. I've been thinking this is kind of the thing that's been on my mind lately. Um, I saw a tweet from MSF, uh, Doctors Without Borders, from a physician working in Rafah. And she was just basically saying, I hope we die at this point. There's nothing, you know, we have seen more than we can ever begin to process. And, you know, usually in quote unquote post-conflict zone, we would have some, you know, mental health interventions. We would offer therapies, art therapy and this, that and the other. I don't know if we know how to deal with the level of trauma that's been coming. I mean, UNICEF has basically said Gaza is hell on earth for children. Well, there's a million children there. And what do we even begin to there's not a how do we scale an effort to reach all of them? How do we ever convince these children that they will feel safe again? Will they be safe again? You know, it's not a rhetorical question. How do we even the, the inefficient, inadequate baseline that we were at on October 6th, we are desperately just trying to claw back to that. The UN has said that economic recovery in Gaza to just that, again, insufficient point could take up to 2092. That's in 70 years. I don't know if people in Gaza have that kind of time. And so the international community that has sit back and watched this happen in many cases funded and diplomatically provided cover for, at the very least, they, I hope, open their pockets and send a bunch of money to organizations working to rebuild both the buildings and the infrastructure of Gaza, but the bodies and minds of the people who must be able to stay there. Um, and I think another question moving forward is this question of resettlement and will people be forced to go to Egypt or elsewhere? Will they be able to return? I mean, these questions of disease, sanitation, malnutrition, there are technical answers to all of this that we know how to do. We know how to scale. These agencies have the capacity. It just needs global attention, global investment, and it needs Israel to lift its restrictions on Gaza.
Um, I don't know the chances of, of all of that happening, but that's what will be needed, again, just to get back to baseline. If we want to get Gaza to a adequate standard of living, it will require much more than that. And it will require a political settlement that I see absolutely no appetite for at the moment. Yara, thank you so much for breaking all of that down for us and really um, showing us just how daunting uh, the challenges are uh, and how difficult the situation uh, is. Suffice it to say that I hope to have you back at some point soon to talk about reconstruction starting. But of course, that means um, we, we want to see an end to this uh, war first and a ceasefire so that all of this suffering can, can halt. I uh, really appreciate you, uh, you being on. So to those who are listening, you know, remember, if, if you've learned from our conversation today, uh, you can find more of our episodes on the website and you can subscribe to our podcast through all the major podcast platforms. We'll leave more questions for another day. Uh, until then, be well. Thank you for listening to Five Questions, a podcast by Arab Center, Washington, D.C. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast so you can receive announcements about upcoming episodes. Please visit our website, ArabCenterDC.org, to learn more about our work and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.